go to um, the oh creation which Ken Ham's website. Answers in Genesis. Go to Answers in Genesis website, search for why we call it Easter, and re there's a paper in there that is a thoughtful paper that examines both sides of things. I will say this, in our generation right now, and this is relevant to what I'm saying with the message, is it is really easy to say, oh, well, Constantine and the Catholic Church messed it all up. And then we can say just about anything we want, and because most of us come from a Protestant evangelical background who looks back at the Catholic Church and says, well, they oppressed us, then we're like, well, the Catholic Church did this, and so therefore we are not doing that. And it has been for far too long an easy byword in the American church to use that to sow discord, quite honestly, and to actually not always be historically accurate. And so I want us to be very careful and very cautious what we blame on the Catholic Church, what we blame on other people, and to understand a few things. So like for instance today, I'm looking at the resurrection, and we just have this, this a different perspective from a woman that we don't normally think about, the woman of the house where the, where the Last Supper was held. And you know she had the phrase, next year in Jerusalem. And so if you can imagine, uh, I don't know if you've ever been part of a group or something that meets annually once a year, where you come together and you do something. And like we used to do a camp meeting and every year we'd go out to Dickey Lake in Montana and we would get together and we'd see people that we hadn't seen all year, but they were at the camp meeting. So there would be our local church fellowship and then there'd be several other from out of state church fellowships that would have people that would come. And so we, we would look forward all year to that next year. And so when the camp meetings dwindles or stops, like when we could no longer go, there's something sad about that. And so when I'm thinking about the next year in Jerusalem crowd that is expecting every year to come back and, and, and go through Passover together, there's something sweet, something hopeful, and something of fellowship in there. And so to have a Passover where a man is crucified and then his disciples claim that this is the Messiah what this is in effect doing is it's messing with the next year in Jerusalem hopefulness and everything you've learned from your parents, everything you've learned about how to do Passover is suddenly you have to ask questions about it. Why, if he is the Messiah, what? And there's so many questions and if he is the Messiah, it requires action of you right now. It requires you to do something. And so, in the same way, I think some of us, most of us, if we grow up in a Christian home or even surrounded by Christianity, we will hear things about Jesus. We will hear things about the God of the Bible. We will hear things about church. And it's nice until one day it comes home to us that we have to make a decision about this man, Jesus. And so I think of this lady who was in, you know, making the unleavened bread and doing all the things we usually do and now if this rabbi is who he says he is, it changes her life and it changes how she responds. And within the next couple of decades, it means that not only are people coming together in Jerusalem, the Jews celebrating those Passover and remembering and looking forward, but suddenly now they're coming together and they're breaking bread with Gentiles. If he is who he said he was and if what he said is true, it changes everything. The Gentiles are not going to be welcome to come into Jerusalem in the same way that all the Jewish believers did and have Passover in the same way with all the Jewish people that are there. And so from now, about this time when Jesus is crucified until for the next several hundred years, there are two things that are constant in the early church. One is that the political situation is unstable. And there are laws on the books that can be used at any moment to hurt us, to persecute us, to get, to get rid of us. If the emperor is busy elsewhere or doesn't really care, then we can slide on and prosper for quite some time. But if, for whatever reason, any of the people, leaders in any of the regions becomes unsatisfied with Christianity and is not happy and starts realizing that we don't worship all the gods 
in the Roman pantheon, if, we don't, if we're not embracing everything they're doing, then they can bring persecution, they can bring trouble to our house just like that. And so you can have a, a seeming period of peace, and then like in 303, suddenly, boom, there's persecution. And so this is a constant that the early church is dealing with. On top of this, for those same centuries, while you're hoping that the local Roman government will leave you alone, there's a Jewish presence and the Jewish presence will not leave you alone because they do not understand and they do not like it that you are claiming as a Gentile to understand their scripture better than they do. Because you are taking their scriptures and you're saying that you belong to Christ and that he is the Messiah and that he fulfills their prophets and their law. And so if you read the accounts, like for instance, Polycarp, um, the account that is written, it, the record that was left to us is that when Polycarp came into town, it was a Jewish leader who reported him to the Roman leaders who got him eventually executed. And so if you think, I've heard recently, somebody said this, they said um, uh, they don't like the early church fathers because they're so anti-Semitic. And so I was like, well, can we flip that around at all and ask how friendly were the Jews to the early church fathers? Because it was a life or death situation and the Jews were not afraid to call on Rome to come eradicate Christians. So this is a reality of what is about, these are things that I'm saying, if he is who he says he is, and if what's happening is happening, then she's right, the world is being turned upside down. In the same way for us today, if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is risen, as we sang, Christ the Lord is risen today, if he is risen, then it changes what we, is required of us. And I have something I want to talk about today that I find both encouraging, somewhat amusing, and a little bit sad. And I'm, I, I still, I'm, I'm like sorting it all out. So um, sometimes when I'm studying for a sermon, I am in scripture alone. Sometimes I'm reading the early church fathers. Sometimes I'm reading other commentaries. Sometimes I'm discussing with other believers. And occasionally I go online and go down some wormholes and see what is being said in the greater circle today. Now, what's, what's hard sometimes to tell is on the internet, we all have an equally loud voice. And so um, the more polished the voice is, usually the more people are actually represented by the voice. And the more bold and red flashing letters and other things it is, then the less representative it is of an actual group of people. It'll be a smaller group. That's my personal opinion. So. I am grateful that we have a long history of things to compare truth with and are able to confirm things apart from just what we see on the internet because we would be in so much trouble right now. There's a lot of stuff on the internet. But I want us to read Matthew 28. And in Matthew 28, very familiar passage. It's one that I memorized I think I was 15 at the time. My family would quote this together. And it says in Matthew 28, verse 1, Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he is risen as he said, come see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Verse 11, now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests 
all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole them away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. So we have this account. We have several things here that stand out. One, as I was reading this week, uh, one of the things I noticed that I hadn't ever really thought about before is that over here in, in uh, verse four, the guards shook for fear of him and become like dead men. And then we don't read about them again until verse 11, while the ladies are going in to back to town, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. So I had a question. When the ladies walked up, were the guards standing there in front of the tomb? Then the earthquake comes, the light, everything happens, and the guards are like dead men the entire time the ladies come and look in the tomb? Like, I've never thought about this. Like, did they literally walk through guards that are plastered on the ground? It doesn't say specifically, but the next mention is that while the ladies were going back into town is when the guards also started going back to town. So just a thought, what, were, what was happening? How long were the guards like dead men? How long were they there? Just, some, just a, a thought I had. I was wondering about that. And another interesting thing is in verse 2, it talks about an earthquake. And if you look back in Matthew chapter 27, verse 53, uh, well, actually, before that, in verse 51, this is, well, verse 50 says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. Verse 52, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And so there's something, so it's mentioned over here as he died, but it's, it, it says after the resurrection, they appeared to many. That, that little clip, by the way, I'm really fascinated by that. I really want to know who appeared to who, what was said, how did all this work out? Like, really? Like, you know, did some high priest get a visitation from one of his ancestors? I just want to know, and I don't know this, and I can't know until I'm with Christ in eternity, but I am very curious. So I think one of the... One of the uh, replays that I'm going to ask to watch if I have this much chutzpah when I'm standing before him is I'm going to say, can we, sh can we talk about this moment here? What happened in Jerusalem after the resurrection when people rose from the dead and went back and appeared to many? I, I'm very curious. So there's that note. What I, what I really want to look at is the you know, we have the moment here where the women, the angel speaks to the women, and then the, men, then, then the women go and are telling the apostles, and then Jesus speaks to the women. And so we have this, this amazing thing where we have one of the most important moments in history, and it's introduced to the women first. And, and Stacy and I had a little bit of this conversation earlier where we're asking why were the women up so early? Why were they there first? And because what all the gospels agree on is that it's in the morning right before dawning. And they're coming. And so I don't know, you know, did the disciples, the apostles, were they so grieved and confused and everything that maybe the first couple nights they didn't sleep, but now they're just passed out? Like they've kind of in a state of grieving? I don't know. But for whatever reason, the women are coming in. And, I, and I, I even wonder sometimes, like, the high priest put two and two together and said he's, he said he was going to rise on the third day. Did the women put that together? Were they coming partially in hope, partially in grief? We don't, it doesn't say that. But why are the women coming and the men are not? The men are left out. So this is, that's a question I have is what was going on. I know it says that they were bringing spices and things for the embalming and other stuff, but they, were, they knew that there were guards. They knew that the grave was sealed. They knew all of that and still they came. So even if they were just coming with the embalming spices, they were still coming in faith and they were still coming in hope and they were still coming expectantly but they had questions. And so when I, when I see myself in the way I approach God, 
I have the same, like, there are times when I'm expecting fully that something is hopeless because I've seen the facts. But at the same time, I've also read the scripture and I'm expecting the truth that is in scripture that God will answer prayer, that he will redeem us, that he will transform something. And so I'm coming in, but I'm fully prepared on just living with the brokenness of this world while I'm also hoping. And so I'm just wondering if this was the case with the women. Was that question in their mind when they were coming? They knew what Jesus had said. And if the high priests who were trying to ignore Jesus could put two and two together, could, could the women put it together? What was, it, it's a question. I don't have a, a true answer for it. But one of the things that I wanted to, and this is the wormhole that I fell down earlier this week, is if you go look at 20, uh, Matthew 28, verse 1, it says, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, if we look at that phrase alone, uh, it appears a handful of times, I think seven or eight times in the New Testament where it talks about the first day of the week. And in each of those instances, it doesn't use the Greek word for week that is available in some of the secular writings at that time. It says the first day of the Sabbaths. And it doesn't quite translate well into English because of the way in Greek you have multiple different um, suffixes and prefixes that can change the meaning of a word just by what is how it ends or begins. And so we have this situation. So what's happening, and this is the wormhole I fell down, is people have been going to Strong's Concordance, opening up to this, and they read it. It says, after the Sabbath, and it's the plural Sabbath, I believe, there. And then they see the next word, and it says Sabbath again, and they say, oh no, someone has corrupted the scriptures and has made it to be the first day of the week on a Sunday and they're honoring the sun god instead of Jesus. And so therefore we've got to get it away from this Greco-Roman dating system. And we've got to, it's a Sabbath. It says it was on the, as it's, and so it would literally say now on the evening after the Sabbath, on the beginning of the Sabbath, on the first day of the Sabbath. So the way they, and so there's a lot of people who are not necessarily qualified to talk about Greek language translation and things, but they are raising a pretty big ruckus about this. And they have some things that they can point to. For instance, when I was reading through the Church Fathers this week, and I, I read too much of Origen and Tertullian that I cannot remember which one had this concern, but one of them had spent a lot of time talking with Jewish leaders because he was trying to understand the Hebrew. And they were comparing the Greek Septuagint with the Hebrew scriptures. And what they kept noticing was that the Greek Septuagint had things in it that the Hebrew scriptures in the early 200s didn't have. And his remark in passing was basically, I do not trust these Jewish scholars for being accurate because they have an agenda that they're trying to carry. And so there is enough of this in history where we can say, did someone mess with the Hebrew scriptures? Did someone mess? And so this is then when it comes in. So here's what we have to, to be aware of. And it's something that if you want to study it and go in depth, there is a lot of material available to look at the textual, uh, like how the Bible is translated, how it all comes together. And so the, the long-standing explanation of, of translating this, because everyone that has translated the Bible in 2,000 years has had to deal with this. Jerome had to deal with it. Others, they had to look at this. Why does it say this? Why does it say on the first day of the Sabbath? And what does it mean? And so the long-standing explanation is that in the same way that we will say the first of the month, and we don't we use the word day in there, we just say the first of the month. You can also say on the first of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath in the, in the Hebrew culture, they had the first day of the week, the second day of the week, the third day of the week, the fourth day of the week, fifth day of the week, preparation day, Sabbath. And so it's the, seventh, the, the, the sevens, the seventh day. You have the sevens thing going on. And so it is similar to saying um, on the first day of the seven is what it would, is similar to that. And so it has been commonly accepted in this way. But for some reason that I have not yet been able to fully comprehend, not for lack of trying and not for lack of people trying to make me understand, but there is, a, there is, especially in America, I don't know what's happening in other parts of the world with this right now, but especially in America right now, there's a strong move saying that we as believers 
we should be celebrating communion. We should be doing everything on Saturday Sabbath. We shouldn't be doing it on any other day of the week. And so my question for that is why is it so important at this point in time to be, and, and I ask this question not because I haven't thought about it and not because people haven't tried to explain it, but I ask the question, why is it so important that the Saturday is the Sabbath in this way? I do not doubt that the Jewish Sabbath is on a Saturday. In the early church, I believe fully that the Jewish believers went to synagogue on the Saturday Sabbath and then on Monday, night after work, or Sunday night after work, they met with all the Gentile believers and had communion and remembered the Lord's Supper together. That is what I find in the writings of the early church. The writings of the early church, long before Constantine came along, there were people who were concerned with the Judaizers who were trying to keep the worship of, of things only on Saturday because they were not Gentiles at the time. They were Gentiles at the time, such, same as you and I are. And so if you look at the writings of Paul, you say, well, there is, a, there is a sense in which one man holds one day above another, some men hold all days alike, but let each one do it according unto the Lord. And so this, is the, 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 this, is the, this was the position of the church. And there was an understanding that when we come to the Gentiles, if you go back and look at in Acts uh, 15, when they came back to the council in Jerusalem, they never, the, the Jewish fathers didn't say, I, I need you to abstain from things, uh, the blood offered to idols, from sexual immorality, and you need to worship on Sunday. They didn't, or, or fr Saturday. They didn't ever say it. They had a fine opportunity to establish that that was the expected way to do things, but they didn't. And by, by that time, with Paul going out, there were plenty of Gentile believers that had been joining them. This issue should have already come up. And I believe it did because they were dealing with it. And so my question, and I asked this question knowing that somewhere somebody is going to try one more time to explain to me why the Saturday Sabbath is the most important thing for our Christian heritage right now. And so I want to set that aside for a moment because I see that the Saturday Sabbath is a Jewish thing. And, and, and as, um, oh, is this Tertullian now that wrote this and his answer to the Jews? He said, the Saturday Sabbath, you have God saying on the seventh day that he rested, but he doesn't require anything of his people until Moses comes along. Then he requires it of them. And he says, so, and so in his mind, it was a temporary thing that was pointing to an eternal thing that had to do with Jesus. And so this is where the moment I say that, because I literally and truly believe that Jesus is my Sabbath rest. And I believe physically as a human being, I have got to rest somewhere in the course of a week. I cannot just keep working for seven days straight and then do it for seven days straight again. I have got to rest. All of creation has to rest. And so I think that even as a Gentile, I need a day of rest. I need some time off. Now, if you go and look what the early church was dealing with, with what the, with, with what the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders were doing, their Sabbath was not exactly restful at that time with all the traditions that they had brought in. Um, if you and I had to deal with such attention to some of the things they were doing in order to keep the Sabbath, it had lost common sense, according to those around them, and it had become a difficult thing where Jesus himself challenges them on this. And so I don't want to fully talk about just the Sabbath only. I want to address a slightly different question. I want to ask this question. Is there a problem if Jesus rose on the first day of the week? Is it fitting? Is it okay if Jesus rose on the first day of the week after the Sabbath? Is that scripturally and for our faith, does it present an issue? And this is a question I'm asking, knowing that I also have not, this one I have explored in depth, but I will not be able to present all the angles that I've thought of, but I want to bring one such angle in. The first day of the week. Many, many times when we're going through scripture and we're looking at days and ideas and concepts, we say, when was this first mentioned? Well, the first day of the week, go back to Genesis 1, chapter 1. We actually have a record that says this was the evening and the morning of the first day. So it says, Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light and there was light and God saw the light that it was good and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night so the evening and the morning were the first day. This is our first mention of the first day. We know that the week progresses and with this light that comes in, when, the, when, the, when, when, when there is light and he divides the light from the darkness, one of the things that becomes visible very quickly in the creation account is that there is nothing solid and dependable on the earth. The spirit of God was hovering over the waters and what was in it, it was all the muck and the mire and the mud. It was all one thing because we see in the second day, the third day that he takes the waters under the earth, gathers them together into one place and let dry land appear also. And so what we see in this account, if we look at all of the creation account, it is a beautiful picture of what happens when the light of Christ comes into our life. One of the first things that happens, I'm going along in darkness. And, and this, is, this is true for each of us at some point in our life. We, we are walking in blindness. We're walking in darkness. We're walking. There is nothing solid in our life. Everything is the muck and the mire and the water, and it's moving around, and there's nothing solid or anything happening. And then the light comes on, and with the light of the, of the gospel shining into our life, we suddenly realize, I am in trouble. My feet are not in a good place. I have nothing to stand on. I am in so much trouble. And so then as we're, as, as we're in the middle of that, comes to the second day, and the second day, God puts a firmament in, and there is water above the earth, and there's water of the earth, and we suddenly start seeing that there is something good, and there's something, or something good and something bad. And what we see, Jesus said that whoever believes on me, out of his innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. There will be water flowing that is the heavenly water, the water from above. But there's also a lot of teaching. In, in scripture, a lot of times, water signifies teaching or doctrine. So there's a lot of teaching and worldly wisdom that's swirling around down here below, the water below. And the water from below is not helping us at all. We are still in this state where there is nothing solid. There is still nothing sure. How can you know anything? There is still, and then on the third day comes the revelation. Aha, here is something solid and I want my feet to be planted on the solid rock. This is not solid. This is solid. And there's that division. We don't see any of this without the light of the gospel first shining in. And so when we, what we see is once we are planted on the solid ground, then eventually things start to grow and fruit comes from the things that grow. And so in each of us as a believer, this is part of what happens in us. We have that moment where the light comes on, we realize the trouble we're in. We realize that there is nothing solid. Then we realize there's something from above, there's something good that I should listen to, and there's something from beneath that is not help, helping me at all. Then we discover the dry ground and we become so grateful that Christ would rescue us from the miry clay and plant our feet on the solid ground, or as it says in Psalm 18, in a wide place. He put my feet in a wide place. He lifted me out of the miry clay. And so we have this, this picture in the days of creation itself of how God works with our own hearts. And so as I'm looking at this, I'm seeing the first day of the week. And I'm thinking about what was happening in the lives of the women, in the lives of the apostles. And they have just gone through what they thought they understood. They have just gone through what they thought they, they knew what was coming. And then Hosanna the king is coming and, they, and they, they come into town and it's beautiful and it's big and it's glorious and they're sure that they know where they're headed and then the passion week begins and things go downhill from there. And we find Jesus in the tomb and the apostles are fled and hiding because they are afraid and they're confused. The world has been turned upside down for them. They thought they understood where it was going and then things got turned upside down. They didn't know what was happening now. And in the middle of this, what happens on the first day of the week? Echoing this other first day of the week. In the dark, these women are walking to the tomb. And as the morning is about to dawn, there's a great earthquake. An angel of the Lord comes down. He's glowing. 
and he rolls back the stone from the tomb. The guards become like dead men and Jesus is risen from the dead. And what was the darkest hour for mankind becomes this moment of truth and this moment of light shining into a dark place to where what we see in the prophets where it says, where it's, it talks about the people who are far off, the people who sat in darkness, that's us. We were far away. We were not anywhere close to Jesus. We were Gentiles lost in sin. And in the darkness where we were sitting came the news of a savior who died and rose again. And the light comes into not just the apostles, when the, when the women come running back and say, he is risen and we saw him. There is a spark of hope that is being brought life into the apostles. And by the time that they fully grasp that Jesus came and rose again, and by the time that the Holy Spirit comes and is poured out on them, by the time they get all of that over the next 50 days, they are ready to face untold opposition to die for the name of Jesus, and they're not afraid. On the morning, the women come out boldly, even bravely, and they are told by the angel, and they're told by Jesus, do not be afraid, and the apostles need that word, do not be afraid. They need that word, but they don't have it just yet. But just wait, wait until Pentecost, wait until after Pentecost and the light that shone into their hearts that morning when he arose, that light becomes not just light, but they realize there's power from on high. The waters above are poured out and they are baptized with a power that is not from beneath. It's not from the earth, it's from God and there is dry ground that they stand on. And when they stand on that dry ground, all kinds of things begin to grow. The church comes into action. People are growing and believing and fruit comes. And it keeps going. And so there is something beautiful in understanding that our God loves these, taking something physical that we do like the feasts, what the Jews were doing, and illustrating something spiritual. Now, if you go back and look at the first, the days of creation, you have all the way down to where God is resting. And when we were going through Genesis, I had spent a lot more time talking about how um, all of this turns into discipleship and growth and, and, and evangelism through the days of creation here. And I love the pictures that are here in the days of creation. It's a really, to me, it's an exciting thing to think of the origins of the earth and then to think of the origins of my faith and to see the parallels of how God is at work. But we come to the, to the seventh day and we have in the seventh day, God resting. And then after the Sabbath, we have a bunch of things here. So after that seventh day when he's resting, we have what, we can, what is referred to as the eighth day. Now, after we get into chapter two and three, we don't have the, the marks of the day, right? We don't actually know how long it was from the time Adam and Eve were put in the garden until the time they sinned. But in the account, it is in the eighth day. So after the Sabbath, in the, so it, you know, we don't have proof that it was in the next 24 hours, but allegorically speaking, we have the eighth day in which Adam and Eve are in the garden and the serpent comes and Eve responds to the serpent. Eve takes that fruit, takes that bite, brings it to Adam and Adam joins her in it. And through that sin is brought into the world and darkness comes with it. And so I wanted, I have a, I have here a scripture, uh, not a scripture, but a commentary on some of these thoughts from some of the church fathers. And I want to read this one, if I can find the correct one. So this is Hilary of Poitiers. 
And Hillary writes, this is a man, by the way, not a woman. I know in our day and age when we think Hillary, we think a woman, but this is not. Uh, so writes and says, the events during which the small band of women first saw the Lord were greeted by him, fell to their knees, and were commanded to announce the good news to the apostles, reverse the order present at the beginning of the world. The gender through which death entered the world would also be the first to receive the glory, vision, fruit, and news of the resurrection. The guards who had seen everything, the guards who had seen everything spurned the glory of the resurrection when they accepted a bribe to lie about the theft of Christ's body. They sold their silence regarding the resurrection in exchange for honor and pleasure of this world, for its honor is in money. And so, the concept that we have front row seats, the guards, seeing the resurrection. Well, they become like dead men, so I'm not sure what all they actually see. But then we have the ladies coming up, and the ladies, the women. Here we are on the eighth day. We are on the day after the Sabbath. So we're mirroring the creation account. And, and what's interesting, um, I don't think I have it here, but in another discussion, one of the, somewhere in the 200s, there was a dis, they were discussing what the significance of the eighth day is. And um, it was a Peter guy from some place. I don't, I rem- don't remember where he was from, but he was writing how um, the first day of the week is also the eighth day. And how by being that, it is a picture of eternity. Because you have the first day, and then you go seven days, and then on the, what would again be the first day is also the eighth day. And so the first day, which is the eighth day, becomes a picture of eternity. And so he was applying that to the idea that if Christ rose on the first day of the week, and this is what he was saying, that this is why it's important that Christ rose on the first day of the week, because it represents the eternity of God, that he is alive, that he is forever alive, that he was briefly in a moment dead on earth, but he is eternally alive. And so this concept of the first day becoming the eighth day, and on that same eighth day, you have the women coming, and they meet the messenger of God, and they meet Jesus Christ himself, and they reverse the order of the fall. They hear from the angel that he is not here. Why are you seeking the living among the dead? They hear Jesus saying, go tell my disciples. And suddenly there is a change. And so what happens? The women get it first. They take it to the apostles. The apostles come running. So let's, I want to back up for just a second and talk about the light again. See, the light of the resurrection when we study all of Christianity, we find this hinge pin in the middle of our beliefs that has to do with the resurrection. If Jesus is who he said he was and he rose again, and you know, the lies of the Jews spread, I, I love how um, much logic you can apply to this. First of all, you have guards that if they fall asleep, they're in pain of death because they fell asleep on their post. Okay, that's just, you know, court-martial them, they're done. But they're given enough money. Second of all, the question someone asked was, when did they replace guards in that time? Because there's some conjecture that the old guard that had been there all night had just been marched away, and the new guard had just shown up and was just standing there, and boom, all this happens. And then the new guard goes in and says, this is what happened. And they say, well, just tell them we fell asleep. So they would actually be saying they fell asleep. So somehow, anyway, that's conjecture. I don't actually know. So I know that if you watch The Risen and you watch some of the other things, you'll see guards doing things and marching around and things happening. We know there were guards and we know that they were willing to say, oh, they came and stole him. So I want to ask, and this is the question I love when we ask, why would the disciples want to steal a dead body of Jesus. When he was alive, he was a life-threatening person for them. Like if he w- they were with him, they, they were in, it was a risk for them to be identified with him. Jesus, I mean, Peter denies him when he's alive. So why would you want to be caught with his dead body now and saying, oh yeah, he rose? When you're running scared and hiding, like it makes no sense. Like what would they do with this? Like the only way this works Truly, because, I mean, what are they going to do? 
You kill their leader, so then they're going to go and say, well, yeah, he rose. Where is he? Oh, well, you know, he's around here somewhere. And, and then what are they going to do, really? Are they really going to like, win a lot of followers because they have a dead body hidden somewhere? Like, practically speaking, logically speaking, politically speaking, it makes no sense to me for them to come up with this. And, and you know, the apostles were in no shape to actually be stealing bodies at this time. They... The fact that the women were up first and were out there tells us something about the condition of what was happening in the hearts of people. The fact that when Peter and John hear it, they are so incredulous that they come running. All of these things, it's just, I, I love thinking about this moment because it, it, it feels, it resonates so well with me, trying to obey God, trying to walk with God, reading the word of God, knowing that it says that I can walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh, knowing that it says I should go and make disciples, knowing that it says all of these things that I ought to be doing, but struggling to actually believe that I could do something that God would honor and minister to someone else. And so it is easier for me to stay at home, to stay hidden, to, to not go out on a limb, you know, there's been times in my life where I have, where I've explained and said things about Christ and I've talked about the claims of Christ. And then afterward, I'm thinking, whoa, what if their experience is different than my experience? What if when they pray, God doesn't answer them? You know, I prayed and God answered and I, heard, I sensed his presence and he led me and he directed me and he called me to himself from the first time that I was in the darkness and the light came piercing in and I realized I was in trouble from that very first time of needing to find solid ground for my feet. I've been hearing and sensing the leading of God. So if I tell you that if you pray, God will hear and respond. If I read to you Psalm 18 and say, this is how God responds to people who cry out to him. So go cry out to the Lord and he will respond. What am I doing? Because if I tell you that I have no power to cause God to respond to you. And this is the place where Peter and the other apostles were. They had no power for them to steal a dead body even if they knew how to mummify it, they wouldn't have known how to do anything with it. They didn't have the power. They didn't have the confidence even to speak any of the promises of God until after the fact, once they had seen Jesus. So when the, when the ladies come and say, he's alive and we have seen him, they doubt and they don't believe. But Peter and John say, Let's go see. And they run out there and they look in and they see the empty tomb and their hearts begin to dawn with a little bit of belief. And by the time that they are walking on, at Pentecost and all through the book of Acts and all the way the rest of their lives, we see there's something has changed in Peter and John and the rest of the apostles. They are 100% convinced that if they will be faithful to speak the word of God, if they will be faithful to pray, if they will be faithful to seek the Lord, that God himself will answer. And as Peter says, he says that, that when Jesus himself was raised up and was lift, raised to the right hand of God the Father, and from there he received from the Father the gift of the Holy Spirit and poured out this, which you now see in here. This was on Pentecost. When he's talking about that, Peter isn't at wondering himself, I wonder if they can have this experience too. He's not even thinking about that. He's just telling you the facts of the spiritual truths of what has happened. And he is totally 100% depending on the fact that if you will repent and turn to Jesus, that God himself will respond to you. It is not Peter's responsibility to respond to you. It's not Peter's responsibility to comfort your heart. It's not Peter's responsibility to train you how to become a preacher. It's none of this is Peter. He only has to proclaim the truth. But in the dark night of the crucifixion, none of this is true for Peter. He doesn't have the heart to believe it. And I've been in that place where I couldn't believe, I couldn't trust, I couldn't, and I was afraid to say something but as I sought the Lord, I realized 
with Peter, with the others, it's not about me being able to give you anything. And so I can come out here and boldly stand here and say, if you will draw near to God, he will draw near to you. If you will repent and cleanse your hands, if you will submit to him, he will draw near to you. You will be able to serve the living God all the days of your life. And so as we come here, there's something beautiful that happens on this first day of the week. The women have a little bit of hope. And I can't tell you how many times in my life, as I was walking and questioning, is this really what God has called me to do? That there would be a woman somewhere in my life who would reach out with a word of the Lord from scripture or encouragement, and she had a little bit of hope and a little bit of faith, and she was walking in it when I was not. And she would share this little truth with me. And so for us in the church today, we cannot, we cannot live without all of us. We all have to risk. I can stand here and I can preach to you, but what we really need is all of us to be trusting that we're hearing from God and that you can hear from God and each of us can hear from God. And for some of us, you know, this, uh, I don't remember now if I told the story here at church last Sunday or not, but I, I was listening to, I believe it was Charles Stanley, and he was telling a story about a time when they needed a building. And in the, when they were needing the building, it was going to be millions of dollars. And this guy calls him up, this man calls him up and says, Charles, uh, Mr. Stanley, do you need a building? And tell me about it. And he says, well, it would be this many million dollars, and this is what we're needing. He says, okay, I'll write the check. And then he came with the check, and they were sitting down, and, and you can imagine if you're thinking about the building that maybe he wants to know about the building. Maybe he wants to know what the project is, how long it will take, what you're going to name. The, all the, no, no, no. What this man wanted to talk about was one thing. He says, I've never in my life heard God speak until this past week when I was praying and I just so strongly heard him say I need to, that Charles Stanley needs a building and I've got to get the money to him. And I heard him speak and I've never had that before. And so I think of that for us. There are times when God might ask us to do something. Do we say, oh no, not that? Or do we say, wow, I just sensed the spirit of God convicting my heart to do something. And then we act on that. It's such a treasure that I think it was altogether right and good for this gentleman to like, almost not care about the money. He's just so excited. God spoke to me. And we can have that same excitement and hopefulness expecting God to respond, to direct, to correct, to convict. And when he does, I want to rejoice and say, the living God has been true to his word. And because I was once lost in sin and dead and gone, and I was, had no hope, but then he himself came, died for me on the cross, and rose again. And uh, the scripture that Tim read earlier uh, from Romans, where if you've been baptized into Christ, do you not know that you shall also be baptized with him into newness of life? You'll rise with him into newness of life. This is our hope. And so what is, what is phenomenal to me as I think about this, and so, so I want to just, uh, you know, when we go back and we talk about the Sabbath, I, I want to think about what the Sabbath is. For instance, right now in the, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, the uh, official opinion on Scripture is that Jesus Christ is the living Word. He is the Word. And that the Scripture that we have has a hierarchy. And so they will have the books of the Apocrypha and other books that we won't have. And so they'll have a hierarchy of saying this is more closer to who Jesus is and these are less so, but they're all helpful to the church. So being a child of the Reformation, I say, heresy, you're saying there's degrees on which God has inspired his word? They're saying, no, we're saying Jesus is the living word. And here's the word that is printed that was print, written by men that helps us find him. So in the same way, when I look at the Sabbath, I feel in a very similar sense where I'm looking at the Sabbath and I'm thinking of it as a written word. It's something that God has done. 
and I'm seeing it as a picture of something bigger that God wants to do. There's a beautiful picture of rest, as it says in Hebrews 4, there remains therefore rest because the children of Israel were given the Sabbath, but they didn't enter into the rest of the living God. And you and I have been given this this opportunity to enter into the rest. So whether you meet on the Sabbath day to discuss this, or whether you meet on the first day of the week to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, or whether you end up meeting on Wednesday night or Friday night or some other time, have you entered into the rest? This is my question. And this is what I'm looking for. Because wherever throughout the church history, wherever men and women have entered into the rest that comes in Jesus Christ, and when we have found our place in him, there has been revival, there has been renewal, and there has been hope. See, I don't know how distraught you would have to be if you knew that there were guards guarding the tomb of the one you loved, and you knew that it was sealed. Would you, in a condition of complete hopelessness approached the tomb because they did. They came in feeling completely, there was no way to open it, but they still came in and they walk in to the scene and God moves. So I want to just now read these as we're coming to the time of communion. Uh, I think Tim is going to be doing communion, but I want to close out this portion of our time. I want to read one more time um, some of these, these accounts. So let's go to John chapter 20. And I want you to listen for a moment. And I want you to think about this in terms of if this is happening on the eighth day of creation, if this is the day of the, of the Lord's day where this is after the Sabbath. And, and I, I love the idea that we, uh, uh, you know, if you have the Jewish people who have been doing all the feasts, the Passover and all of this stuff, and they're trying to keep the rest, but they haven't yet entered into the rest and then on the, after the Sabbath, after they have tried, after they have failed, then comes Christ. And he brings us to a place where it says in, in Philippians that uh, it talks about that resurrection power of identifying with Christ. So listen to this for a minute as we read through these scriptures and think about the power of this. And from us, our Western way of thought it is very helpful and thoughtful to think that on the first day of the week, at the beginning, we have resurrection power. And then we can walk through the entire week. And when it comes to the time of rest, we have accomplished our work in the same way that God did accomplish his work at the beginning, we have accomplished our work. And so on the first day, we come back together again and we report into each other of what God has done and we share in communion. It is altogether right and good and fitting that on the first day of the week, we celebrate a new beginning. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And we come together and we celebrate Jesus. We celebrate communion. We, and so I can, I can feel it now. I can see that Jewish man who is going to his synagogue on a, on a Sabbath. And then on Sunday, he goes to the market and does whatever he usually does. And in the evening, he gathers with the rest of, it, of the other believers in the area. And as they're coming together and they're sharing in communion, and he says, I, I just have to tell you something. And he says, when I was a boy and we were doing Passover and he shares the whole thing and they explains it all. And then all the Gentile believers sit around and say, wow, that is so awesome that Christ fulfilled this Passover and that he is our Passover lamb. That is amazing. And then they take communion, remembering Christ with a much deeper sense of who they are and the church is being strengthened because they have both the Jew and the Gentile here together in the fellowship. And on the first day of the week, when they come together, they're celebrating the fact that he rose again from the dead. So let's read John chapter 20, starting in verse one. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he is stooping down, and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. 
Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the older disciple, the other disciple who came to the tomb first, went in also and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. And now let's turn to Mark, actually uh, Luke 24. Luke chapter 24, starting with verse one, says, now... On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, but they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles and their words seemed to them like idle tales and they did not believe them. But... Peter arose and ran to the tomb and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves and he departed marveling to himself at what had happened. And now let's go to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16, starting in verse one. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw the young, a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where the, they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb for they trembled and were amazed and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now, when he rose early on that first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. Matthew chapter 28, where we started. And again, think about this. As Eve, the first woman, on that eighth day, coming and listening to the lies of Satan and sinking us all into sin, and then compare it with this, with Mary and Mary and Salome and Joanne and whoever was with them. But think about them. Here they come and they hear the truth of the gospel. And out of the darkness that we've been sunk into by the first Eve, we suddenly are brought into the light of this day. Verse 20, uh, chapter 28, verse one. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. 
And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he is risen as he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren Go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Jerome writes, Two different feelings occupied the minds of the women, fear and joy. Fear came from the magnitude of the miracle they had witnessed, and joy from the desire for the resurrection. Nevertheless, both feelings impelled their steps. They continued on to the apostles so that through them, the seed of faith would be scattered. And behold, Jesus met them saying, Hail, and they who sought him out and ran to him deserved to be the first to meet the risen Lord and to hear him say, Hail, so which would be like saying hello or greeting there in the first, in their language. Thus it happened that Eve's curse was undone by these women. Chris Ostom writes, talking about this very thing. And he says, some among you may desire to be like these faithful women. You too may wish to take hold of the feet of Jesus. You can, even now, you can embrace not only his feet, but also his hands and even his sacred head. You too can today receive these awesome mysteries with a pure conscience. You can embrace him not only in this life, but also even more fully on that day when you shall see him coming with unspeakable glory with a multitude of the angels. If you are so disposed along with him to be compassionate, you shall hear not only these words, all hail, but also those other words, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. And so in closing, I just want to say this. If it is in your heart that you want to observe a physical Sabbath, I think it is right and altogether good that you could celebrate the Jewish Sabbath, but you have to understand that it was a Jewish Sabbath and that the Jews were put in place, the adopted, the the chosen children of God to bring the gospel to the whole world and the Sabbath, that is a physical day, is but a shadow of the one that we are to keep holy in our hearts before him. And Jesus is our place of rest. It is right and good for you to keep the Sabbath on a Saturday if you're seeking to keep a physical day of rest. It is also appropriate and altogether right and good for us as believers to gather on the first day of every week and to celebrate this first day among first days, when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And I'm telling you something, when I think of the place of rest that God has prepared for his saints, and I think of this day, they are related because of Jesus, but they're not the same thing. On the first day of the week, when we come together, we are commemorating the blood and the body of Jesus. We're commemorating the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We're commemorating the fact that when God chose Abraham and through them all of Israel and instituted the law through Moses and did all of those things, it was for one purpose and one purpose only. It was so that he could show the power of Jesus Christ through all the nations. And on the first day of the week, we come and we together celebrate the commission that Jesus Christ has called us and has sent us out into the world. And we celebrate the fact that we as Gentiles can celebrate with Jews something sacred and holy that the Jews did not celebrate. And it is the death of Jesus Christ. They had 
feast that pointed forward. We have a feast that doesn't just point backward, it points to heaven and forward. It points to something in the past, it points to something right now, and it points to an eternal reality that's coming. And this is why it's good and right to both have a day of rest, if you want to celebrate that, but to have the first day of the week commemorated as the beginning. It's a commissioning, it's a remembering, and it's the whole world. It is not a Jewish holiday. It is the remembrance of the savior of all mankind, the creator of the universe. And on the first day of the week, when we come together throughout the year, we're always pointing to this first day of the week when Jesus rose. And there is a celebration and there is a deep fellowship that we have with God the Son, through God the Holy Spirit, in accordance with the will of God the Father, that we get to identify with the blood and body of Jesus Christ. And it is right and good for us to do this on the first day of the week. And I will say, as Chris Austin said, if you have this desire where you keep thinking, I wish I could have been walking through the early morning dew, and looked up and seen Jesus walking to me and heard him speak to me these words. You may not experience it in exactly that way, but you can know him, you can walk with him, and you can have that sweet communion. That's what communion, a lot of communion is, is we are together holding the feet of Jesus, the one who died for us, the one who created us, the one who loved us, the one that we are looking forward to seeing on that day and the one that we can know right now. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us this beautiful account of the time when these women were coming through the garden and they found you, Lord. And they came and they held you by the feet, as Matthew says, and you spoke to them. Father, we come today and we are needing to hear from you and so I pray for all of us who are here in this building, and I pray for all of those who are listening, would you stir in us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, a hunger and thirst not just for our righteousness, but for the righteousness of Jesus Christ, for the person of Jesus Christ, for the fulfillment from the dawn of creation, the expectancy that we have had, that there is one coming, and here you are, Lord, and you're in our midst and you've revealed yourself to your disciples, your apostles, and today you can reveal yourself to us. And so we ask that you would reveal yourself to each of us, and that on the first day of the week, as we are gathered, that you'd give us our commissioning, that we, through this first day of the week, would come to fully expect the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to receive that power and to walk in it week by week, day by day, and that we truly could rest our faith on Jesus Christ that there would be nothing else except being in Christ alone, Father. Thank you for your great love and your compassion for us and your provision. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.